From the University of Alberta Alumni Association, it's What the Job. I'm Matt Ray. You know, most people, including myself, I couldn't get my head wrapped around being the next Apple. That seemed unattainable. That was something that happened in California, not in Calgary. And now it's possible for people to come from anywhere to create a, a, a successful organization. In this pre-pandemic episode, I talked to Evan Hu, a self-proclaimed serial entrepreneur and veteran of the Alberta tech sector. Throughout his career, Evan has founded several successful tech startups and mentored many more. We cover a wide variety of topics in our conversation, including his winding path from engineering to entrepreneurship, what it was like to switch careers during the 1980s downturn, the rapid evolution of the tech sector, and we even take a bit of time to talk about a World War I documentary. At the end of the episode, we've included some bonus content for you, a brief interview with Evan to talk about what's changed for him since the pandemic started. What the Job is made possible with the support of our affinity partner, TD Insurance. Did you know that through the TD Insurance Mellish Monics program, University of Alberta alumni are entitled to preferred rates on car, home, condo, and renter's insurance? Save even more by bundling your car and home insurance. To learn more about how you can save, please visit tdinsurance.com slash ualbertaalumni. So what's your name and what's your job? Uh... My name is Evan Hu. Uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur and a community volunteer. So that's yeah. I, I don't really have a job title. I uh, I did uh, founded several startups over the last 25 years. Uh, so I was founder, CEO, um, had several exits. I was a PricewaterhouseCoopers partner. Um, I was the interim CEO at Innovate Calgary uh, while we did a uh, transition and we're on a uh, search for a new CEO. So I've done a variety of work over the years. Yep. Um, yeah. So moving around a lot, huh? Like, yeah, I I had a very unconventional by traditional measures, uh, air quotes. No one can hear, see air quotes on uh, an audio, <laughs> but uh, career path. Yeah, it wasn't a career path, and and uh, so uh, yeah, I I've done a lot of things over over my years. So so for what you're doing right now, yeah, what is a a day or, or a week, what sort of things uh, are you doing? Who are you interacting with? Yeah, I, I'm very fortunate. I, uh, I get to, uh, you know, pick my own projects, call my own shots. Um, I, uh, I'm the board chair at uh, Platform Calgary, which is uh, our, uh, our local uh, innovation center. And we're building a new facility uh, in downtown Calgary uh, adjacent to the, uh, the new city library. And it's going to go live in in uh, in January of uh, 2021. Uh, so I've been uh, volunteering over there um, and and helping on a lot of fronts. Uh, I also coach a lot of startups. Um, so I meet with founders um, on a regular basis. I uh, I'm a volunteer with Cal- uh, Creative Destruction Lab Rockies, so um, which is associated with the Haskane School of Business here, uh, and it is also a startup accelerator program. So I uh, spent some time there. Um, yeah, I, I got a lot of uh, side projects that I do, you know. Um, so I got tons of things to keep me busy. A lot on the go. Yeah, a ton, a ton, too when, much. <laughs> when you're coaching startups, when you're working with startups, yeah. what sort of things do you do? How do you help them? Uh, well, it depends. Uh, there's there's a, a never-ending list of things to uh, for founders to get done. And, you know, any kind of support is good, in my opinion. So... I always uh, encourage uh, startup founders to seek advice, opinions, um, support from others. So it depends what they're looking for and what stage of the startup they're at. And uh, I mean, I've got limited time too because uh, my, my startup work is um, in the early stages, especially the uh, sort of first uh, first um, uh, touch points with them is I just do it pro bono. And uh, as they grow, I, I'll, uh, you know, if it needs to be more formal and, and more of a formal commitment, I'll, uh, I'll engage in a, you know, an arrangement with them, usually in exchange for equity. Um, so uh, it all depends is the answer there. So why, why do you do it? Why, like, you know, it seems like it's very busy. You could have been focused on just one thing. Why this? Uh, you know, I, I, I did well with my startups. Um, I mean, there was a few bumps along the road, a few startups that went under. Uh, didn't make it, uh, but I had uh, two major successful exits and, and a half. So, um, you know, financially by, you know, sort of middle-class Canadian standards, I'm, I'm set. 
Um, I didn't go into building startups to make money. Uh, my perspective on, on, on life is, um, uh, I have more than enough, you know, so, uh, I don't need private jets or super yachts or whatever Silicon Valley gazillionaires need or any of those, those individuals I have more power to them. Well, not actually, but anyways, <laughs> uh, you know, they can live their lives, but, uh, I, uh, without getting, uh, too deep into my, uh, uh, life philosophy or my religious background. I mean, I, I grew up in a mixed, um, household of, uh, Catholicism and uh, and Buddhism and whatnot. So my my Buddhist side sort of won over, and I I just like I said, I have more than enough health, family, um, enough means to be comfortable. So maybe I was going to say maybe your Catholic side won't even feel guilty about. It. <laughs> uh, you know, I got to say a little bit of the Catholic side was liberation theology, which I was touched upon when I was a young man. So I have more of a New Testament view of the world. Um, I'm very disappointed on how many things have turned out in our political spectrum, but. Um, I think that uh, service to the community is something that's uh, very important. And I find it very fulfilling. So mm-hmm. um, I do a lot of work there, and, and uh, there's never uh, there's never enough time to do all the things I'd like to do there. But uh, so I, I, I spend time where I can, um, and uh, because of my background in startups, and I love working with startup founders. Um, uh, I get to pick and choose them too, right? I mean, if they're not coachable or we don't really want to be coached, it's okay. We we don't have to work together. Uh, the ones that are interested in uh, being coached, uh, great. You know, I can as much time as I can find. I, I support them. Um, when 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 did you launch your first startup? Uh, my first startup was uh, was OmniLogic. Uh, we started that in 1992. And how'd it go? Uh, it went. We got lucky. The first one was a hit. Right. Uh, took nine years to build it up. Um, you know, the uh, startups are, n- are not a, uh, they're a random walk in life. They uh, they take you all over the place, uh, lots of uh, twists and turns. And, uh, you know, contrary to uh, sort of the uh, rags to riches stories you see on reality TV, it's, you know, it doesn't happen overnight for the vast majority. And we ground it out, you know, uh, over years to get there. So uh, eventually, um we became part of PricewaterhouseCoopers. We were acquired by them, and that's where I became a partner there for a few years. But we had, by then, reached 600 staff and, you know, six offices and et cetera, et cetera. So it was a very large enterprise, well, medium, medium large enterprise by then, right? So, so that, what was it? How many people were involved when you started? Was it just you or did you have uh, Myself and a partner, Rod Hannaford, and I started it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, we uh, had two more founders join us, Mike Alcure and Dave Turk. And ultimately, uh, uh, Mike and I became the co-CEOs. Um, and uh, Mike and I uh, uh, eventually left PriceWaterhouse um, and uh, Pricewaterhouse Coopers by then, because uh, it was PriceWaterhouse originally, and then they had merged with Coopers Library, you know, world of corporate affairs. Uh, and uh, you know, felt uh, you know what I was doing at PriceWaterhouse Coopers was not really what I was uh, interested in doing, right? And I, I did have the luxury of choice. And uh, we took a little time off, and we uh, launched a uh, a little uh, startup called Maple Music, which was a uh, 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 digital music e-commerce site back in 1999 as a side project. And uh, we left to work on it um, a little bit more, and, and Mike took it on more on. And, and uh, a little bit later, we launched Ideaca, um, and... Uh, which we grew. Uh, that was in the uh, early 2000s. And uh, eventually, um, we uh, Ideaca was acquired by Hitachi um, in uh, 2014. Wow. So, um, yeah. So, uh, again, uh, had that path. Um, then I got into, uh, I'd been starting again involved in angel investing in startups and working on startups. Uh, Sorry, what's angel investing? Oh, uh, so uh, in the world of tech, in the world of tech, uh, there's a um, there's a uh, an investment model um, that, that that tech has evolved to, where startups uh, um, have uh, funding stages phases, right? So typically, uh, uh, founders will bootstrap, as we say. In other words, they use their own time and money to get going. They'll usually find some um, family and friends' money 
uh, a minor, you know, uh, a minor, minor investment to get them a little further along. And at some point, they'll be looking for an outside investor. And um, angels are a group of individuals uh, which are very early stage uh, that will invest, and they're usually former entrepreneurs. So, you know, kind of you know, angel on your on your shoulder kind mm-hmm. of a thing, where they'll come in, and and, and the, the ventures are usually extremely high risk still at the time. They're often pre revenue, um, and uh, you know, barely full, barely formed, but an angel will come in and invest at that early stage. Right, uh, and then later, uh, institutional investors will come come around and what they call uh, seed round investing. Angels will also participate there, and seed round turns into Series A, Series B, Series C, blah blah blah. Right, um, so I participate very early on in the uh, in the inception of the startups as an investor. So uh, I have a small portfolio of about uh, over twenty uh, startups here in uh, Calgary. Uh, Vancouver and and, and uh, Toronto that I've invested in. So, when you started your your first startup, w- yeah. did you have any thought that it would end up here? That <laughs> oh no no, uh, you know I um, I uh, uh, I started off pretty conventionally. I don't I don't I don't come from an entrepreneurial family. Uh, you know, immigrant uh, Canadian family. Uh, my, my my father was an academic uh, graduate student here and my mother was also a graduate student um, and uh, you know she worked in, uh, in the food industry when she graduated and my father was a uh, law librarian a professor of law library science um, and, and a lawyer as well um, but uh, you know we lived uh, in, in by today's standards a very low-income family uh, they had a lot of uh, debts to pay off to to get their education they you know we did not come from money so, and, and we were entrepreneurs, so, you know, the, my path was, uh, like a lot of immigrant families, was to do well in school and do something uh, after school in, in the educational side. So I went to uh, University of Alberta, took engineering. That was in the early 80s, but, uh, you know, I actually started in 1980, and literally in my first year ended, and the NEP, uh, the NEP crash came, and, and Alberta was devastated, and uh, I remember... Many of my uh, classmates, uh, you know, had uh, summer jobs lined up that just evaporated. The uh, the new grads, uh, uh, I remember, you know, I, I vaguely remember about 90% of them were unemployed. Wow. Right? Yeah. And they went from full employment literally the year before uh, for the engineering students to like 10%, 15 or whatever the numbers were. And this was 1981. Um, things were looking pretty bleak. Um, and... Uh, Anyways, I mean, I, uh, I I was the second cohort of the University of Alberta's uh, co-op program, which turned out to be a fortuitous choice because it allowed me some employment and some job experience. But when I graduated in 85, the economy was still weak in the oil and gas business. And being in Alberta, I mean, it's the number one industry, and most engineers ended up in sort of some version of a resource extraction. So, um, you know, I... Uh, I remember getting a contract coming out uh, out of school in '85 for four months, and it was working on a new, uh, working on a, uh, a potential uh, oil and gas play for a junior that didn't pan out. So after the four-month contract was done, I was unemployed again. Um, but I had a backup plan, which was to go back to U of A and do a master's in engineering management. And even then, I was thinking about pivoting into this thing called software at the time, because <laughs> um, I, I uh, took an interest. I'm a mechanical engineer uh, for my degree, but uh, I'd uh, started playing around with uh, um, what they would call them microcomputers back in the day, uh, and then was a bit of a hobbyist. So I enjoyed that, and uh, you know, got to be good at you know uh, those those kind of uh, that early stage technologies, especially like. Simple spreadsheets. Uh, you know, I could write macros when most engineers couldn't do that, right? So I found myself a niche, and um, but I did go back and do my master's degree. And then while I was doing it, I uh, I figured, yeah, you know, I had a bit of uh, I'd paid off my student loans um, for the most part, so I I uh, was able to do that. Figure I could further my education, see what would happen. So I wanted to keep my options open. Um, and uh, ended up working for an engineering procurement company up in Edmonton for a while while I was doing my master's part-time. I switched around, and then it went into receivership. (laughs) 
And uh, when it came out of receivership, the new ownership decided to take a different direction, and I, uh, I joined uh, Imperial Oil, Oil Sands Division, but on their, uh, their IT side. So I started working on, uh, on computer software for, for uh, Imperial Oil. Mm. And that's where I got the idea of the startup with another Imperial employee. And uh, again, this is now 1992, there was another downsizing going on. You see, there's a theme here. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I, I didn't know anything about oil and gas uh, when I lived in the province. Uh, as a student, I started understanding it better. I, you know, I, was, I, was, I was young and, and didn't grow up in it, and I started understanding how resource cycles, uh, you know, commodity cycles work. So it was like, whoa, wait a second, this is a normal phenomenon. This is a boom-bust industry. And I didn't find it that appealing to stay in it. Um, I didn't like the... Um, I didn't like the uh, up and downs, and, and uh, for me, the work was okay, but it didn't uh, really um, interest me a whole lot. I found that uh, software and computer science much more uh, appealing and interesting to me personally. So uh, Rod and I uh, uh, um, uh, left ESSO. Uh, they were, they're giving voluntary packages out. Rod left first. Uh, he was a senior guy at, uh, at, at Inter-Imperial, and, and, and I was still sort of an intermediate, but... I didn't. I I waited too long to get the package, um, and uh, he. But he he left first and started, uh, and uh, told me the water was warm and kept on bugging me. And I eventually said, oh, "Okay, fine." Um, and uh, uh, we started Omni Logic up and uh, grew it over, you know, a few years. And then uh, Mike and Dave joined us, so uh, we bootstrapped it. Classically in the '90s, um, there was no uh, tech investment community. Um, you know, I mean, maybe in the Valley, but certainly in Canada, there are little pockets in Toronto and Ottawa, but nothing in Alberta that was formal. Uh, we didn't, I didn't understand how to raise money. Neither, none of us did. So we, we literally uh, used uh, Rod's, um, Rod's uh, uh, exit package and I took no salary for two years. Wow. Right. Yeah. So uh, been, that must have been like a scary time or was it, or did you just have confidence in the project? You know what? I felt. What I didn't, uh, I wasn't married. I, I, you know, was living with my uh, uh, girlfriend, uh, who became my first wife. Then we divorced later, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so we were okay, right? Uh, you know, it was kind of like staycations, and didn't buy any luxury goods or go out for dinner a whole lot. You know, um, cooked at home. You know. Um, watched our pennies mm-hmm. and uh you know um you know my hobbies interests were uh, you know renovating my house i was racing bikes and playing a little beer league hockey that was it mm-hmm. you know, the inexpensive things to do um and uh put every penny back in the business and, and you know my our attitude as well if it flopped in a year or two i just go back and find work again mm. and um certainly back in the day uh there were a lot of there was a lot of skepticism towards us so you know I think I was challenged by some people saying, you know, you didn't quit to start a startup. You got laid off, didn't you? You got fired, you know, because there was a bit of a joking euphemism back in the day that uh, if you were a consultant, that means that you were unemployed, right? And what we had started up was start off as a, as a, as a uh, consulting company, in, in, in a software consulting company, right? So, uh, and, and very, there were, there was very, it was a very nascent industry and, and the concept of doing a startup like that we didn't have the sort of infrastructure and science and education around. So we sort of fumbled our way through it. Right. Mm. Um, so, you know, it was just one of those things where I said, what's the worst thing that can happen? I mean, I'm, I'm out two years salary. Um, and I would have learned a lot. Um, I, I've always had, I, I wouldn't say I'm a optimist. Um, I'm very pragmatic, but, but I'm also, uh, definitely not a pessimist. And I, and I, uh, I thought agency, uh, I didn't use those words back then, of course, but my own personal agency was really important to me. And I didn't like my first few, quite a few years of, of uh, employment were really kind of crappy because kept on getting laid off or companies going bankrupt. And I went, whoa, um, hmm. you know, and I didn't see myself working in the same place for 30 years, right? I just couldn't see that. I was always curious about new ideas and, 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 and software. But the wonderful part was it was constantly evolving and changing. Is it still? Is it? Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, uh, change is is a, is 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 just what it is. It's it's the nature of the industry. Rapid change. So, 
the, the technologies come and go uh, rapidly. Um, it's a very different mindset. Um, and if you, you're, you know, sort of a, I was imprinted into it. Uh, so I, I don't, I'm not, I don't suffer from any anxiety or, or uh, concern over it. It's just what it is, right? Um, it's the air that we breathe in that industry, which is, you know, troubling because I have many um, friends and colleagues um, from engineering in the past that struggle with that today. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't believe, uh, you know, in many ways, uh, I, I see what, I have sons as well, you know, uh, age 27 through 14. So, uh, you know, I've work, worked uh, you know, hard with them to make sure that they're, you know, they're prepared for life. And, and uh, I try to inoculate them from those concerns, right? Uh, so they're pretty resilient, independent bunch doing their own thing. Uh, quite proud of them for uh, having that level of uh, agency as well. They're, they're further down the road than I was at that age. I, I tripped into agency, <laughs> my, my self-sufficiency on own, out of pure need. Right. It seems like you chose it, though, right? Like you could have rolled the dice and, st- and stuck in oil and gas and just see how it goes. Maybe you feel oh, like, well, it would have been easy. In fact, that's when, when when Rod left, I stayed for a while and didn't leave. And that's mm-hmm. why I missed out on the packages. <laughs> and then said, you know what? Maybe I'll give it a try. Because right? it was hard for me to get around it. My head wrapped around it, too. Yeah. It's, it's not an easy choice. But I, you know, like I said, I, I was fortunate that I didn't have any huge uh, personal commitments to you know family or friends and, and stuff. And I could afford to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but you know, we, uh, you know, people put up a lot of barriers, um, and, you know, give themselves all kinds of rationalizations why they can't do it. It's very personal. Um, for me, it was, it was, it was, it was a difficult, but at the, ultimately, uh, it's a challenge. I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm just going to do it. So, and I, yeah, never looked back after that. How have, uh, you've talked a bit about yeah. how. Um, it's, it was, it's obviously very different now doing a tech startup than it was in, say, the 90s. Yeah. What are some of the big, big changes? Um, well, you know, I, th- I think the biggest change has, it, it, it's, it's in the forefront of the media. So people are aware of startup culture and startups. And, mm-hmm. and there, are, there are now, uh, you know, there were sort of role models back in the 90s, if you were looking. But they weren't on the front page, so to speak. I mean, it's kind of, not a very great, uh, funny, I, I realize I'm using a newspaper analogy and many, many of your, the listeners probably don't even know what a newspaper is now, right? <laughs> well, it's an alumni, so I mean. Yeah, uh, yeah, okay, there you go. They may be, they may be exposed, right? But, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so uh, startup founders, startup culture, uh, the opportunities of working in, 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 in the, uh, the startup environment uh, wasn't understood or well-known by the general public, right? And now, of course, we have, we have progressed, you know, my God, it's almost 30 years now. And today, you know, we have a uh, globally. There's a huge startup community out there in many countries, supported by uh, both private uh, industry uh, investors and, and uh, governmental agencies. Um, so there is education at the universities, entrepreneurial education at universities and and uh, and uh, colleges. Um, there's uh, all kinds of uh, uh, courses and seminars and support online. Right, um, you, uh, you just—it's—it's it's exponential, like like literally a thousand times more uh, information and support. Maybe, maybe ten thousand. I don't know what it is out there. And mainly free. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of uh, the internet-driven world, right? Um, there's there's decent quality uh, support information that's 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 free or next to free out there, right? So uh, role models that are very very public, right? I mean. In the 90s, there was the Steve Jobs of the world, very rare, and Steve Wozniak and Apple. And, and But, you know, most people, including myself, I couldn't get my head wrapped around being the next Apple. That seemed unattainable. That was something that happened in California, not in Calgary. Hmm. Right. And now it's possible for people to come from anywhere to create a, a, a successful uh, organization, Right. If your if your first startup had flopped, if it had yeah. been a total disaster, yeah. do you think you'd still go forward with more, or do you think that you'd be like, no, it's not for me? That's a, <laughs> that's an interesting high question to ask. I, I really haven't actually thought about that ever. Actually, no one's ever asked me that. Uh, interestingly enough, after all these years, um, I have no idea. I mean, what I've uh, yeah, maybe maybe I would have uh, hunkered down and just said, you know what, I'm going to just play it safe and and 
reboot my engineering career and, and follow that path. It would, it would have been easy. Uh, not well, not, not easy. It would have been natural, an easy, uh, a natural path to go down. Um, and uh, who knows what I would have done, right? I, I don't know. My nature is, um, um, I, I'm very curious. Uh, I, uh, I love, um, I love looking at all kinds of interesting, different things. So, uh, I guess I could call myself a bit of a polymath. I mean, I love all subjects, history, philosophy, arts, uh, music, right? Design. Um, and, and the more you do these things, the more you go down these little rabbit holes, the more, uh, you learn about it, the more you realize there's interrelationships everywhere. And one thing leads to another, and then um, you realize how uh, how many of these topics uh, mash together to form you know form businesses or form projects that you can do and all kinds of stuff. And certainly, when the when the internet came along, and exploded that that actually reinforced that uh, those capabilities to do amazing projects. Uh, I I grew up with this idea that everyone had to be specialized; that you need to have you couldn't you weren't allowed to do this unless you were you know skilled at it. And now, you know, we have, we have a maker culture where people just go and start doing things and um, role models to do that. And I think back when I grew up, there were a lot of barriers. People had this attitude, you're, oh, you're not allowed to do that. You're not skilled. You don't have the background. You know, let, leave it that to professionals. I went, wow, you know. And there's still people who do that sort of, you know, fixed mindset kind of mentality, right? Um, a little bit of that uh, Canadian tall poppy syndrome too. Uh, don't you? You, are you trying to be different or exceptional? You can't do that, right? So, um, so today it's it's very different. I think, you know, um, the opportunities are always there. Everyone thinks that, oh my God, I've missed out, right? And it's too late. And it's never too late. There's always. I'm always amazed because I feel that way too. It's like holy crap! Like I missed out in the internet in the early days. I was too busy doing other stuff in software, right? And, and um, didn't see really the, at all the potential of the internet and i was there you know we're doing stuff with the technology i couldn't see the business models or the opportunities where the world was going to change you know and, and that was in the mid 90s and then there were multiple internet uh, booms and busts and waves of internet technology i missed social media didn't understand the implications of that um you know the telecom thing where you went from uh, uh, you know, voice over uh, copper to cellular voice to internet IP driven, right? I mean, who makes a long distance phone call through a phone company anymore, right? You have free apps and all this kind of stuff, for example, right? Or, you know, the uh, the destruction of the uh, the uh, camera and recording business, you know, from analog and chemical to, to full digital, all thing happened in over a period of fifteen years. I didn't see the implications, like the fact that we're doing a podcast on a zero budget, essentially, right, compared to what had to take place 30 years ago. Yeah. Phenomenal, right? So. Yeah, I, was, uh, I mean, it is, I can remember being in, I was in high school in the 90s, and I can remember uh, our media teacher got a digital camera, and it was amazing. And it had, like, one of those old floppy disks that you shoved in the back. It could take, like, 10 pictures. Yeah. But it was amazing. You yeah. could see the picture right yeah. there. And, and you could you could erase it and redo. Yeah. Right, because I remember doing some photography in those early days, and you realize, oh my god, it was like it was. And, and again, I was on a shoestring budget doing my startup, so I stopped. I was very careful about how many photographs I could take because everyone had a fixed price to it. And now you have an unlimited ability, essentially, mm -hmm. um, to take as many pictures as you want, curate them, reshoot them, and if you want to store them, well, storage is so cheap, it doesn't matter. Essentially, yeah. it's free. At, well, there are free services to store photographs, right? I mean, it's just, yeah. it's a matter of um, convenience, right? Yeah, and use use software later to make them look the way you want. Well, to look. that too, right? I mean, uh, if you remember the back in the day of the darkroom, right? yeah, and darkroom manipulation techniques and whatnot. You know, we, of course, we have all these uh, uh, editing tools, and and uh, now with AI, uh, you know, we're in the next explosion. I mean, uh, I've been watching some. Uh, 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 I don't know if you've seen the deep deep fake technology. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, like all technologies, uh, technologies are neutral. What people do with them can be good or evil, right? Uh, and on the good side is is what they can do for the restoration of of uh, a film, and uh, you know so they they can take old uh, like literally uh, movies from the original you know ten years of uh, uh, you know in the nineteen hundreds where you know it's shot at X frames per sec 
per, per second hand cranked so it's uneven mm-hmm. right if the, the, the film stock's been damaged and they can basically upscale edit and, and make it look smooth like look, look look it looks like it was shot through a 35 millimeter or 70 millimeter camera almost right it's amazing i've seen some of this stuff and we're just beginning uh it's using ai to fill in essentially all that stuff and we're just at the beginning of that now. Right? I, yeah, have you seen um, Peter Jackson made a war documentary? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I forget what it's Ooh, called. I'll look it up. But it's yeah, but World War One. It's it's beautiful. And yeah. they uh, after the movie they they do a short documentary about how he made it, and yeah. um, it's amazing because he talks about yeah balancing out the frame rate and also like making the shots look like uh, modern shots. Yeah, and and and, and, and it makes it accessible because I remember watching uh, you know World War One documentaries and it. And it was less accessible looking at the people there because mm-hmm. you had a hard time relating to them because they felt so distant, right? And all of a sudden, like Peter Jackson, they sprang up as young men, right? That could be your friends or yeah. your cousins or your nephews and that were real. They seem more real, right? Yeah. And I knew that was his objective and, and it was, you know, extremely um, painful to watch knowing that these men were being slaughtered, right? Uh, and then all of a sudden you could you could have a deeper empathy for them, right? Because it just, it's it's amazing how the, just the visualization changed everything about how, you know, you know, connected you could get to those stories, right? Yeah. So we're, and, and, and the amazing part too is that that was a side project for Peter. Yeah, he did that as like a hobby. Hobby, right, exactly. So, I mean, and 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 that's the amazing thing today that, uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people are are, are leveraging that. I mean, you, you because of uh, essentially uh, frictionless, Dis, uh, production and distribution, you can have your own television program. Mm-hmm. You know, um, lots of people do it on YouTube, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know that that, uh, that 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 little kid in the middle of nowhere can be a global superstar and have and make a living, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's like I said, there's uh, there's there's so many opportunities. Uh, it never ends, right? So, uh, you know, how did we get here? Oh, you asked me if would I've come back? I probably would have because I would have. I, I mean, I'm. Uh, I have a sort of a internal personal model that uh, I realized was out there. I, I remember looking at some research work in the '90s. Um, so, uh, Dr. Clayton Christensen, who just recently passed away, is a Stanford uh, professor, but former entrepreneur, and he uh, he uh, his work was uh, he was trying to delve into the minds of disruptive. Uh, uh, industry disruption and the behavior of entrepreneurs and what made people tick. But uh, him and his colleagues had done work on uh, what were the habits of that, that separated entrepreneurial executives and leaders from other people, right? And when I read his work, I said, oh my God, that's me, right? And, and uh, I remember looking at it and, and I, there were certain habits that I'd started forming over the years and I, I always had them since childhood, but not, you know, I didn't recognize them that way. And, uh, like I, I have an openness to new ideas. I'm just, when I see something, um, uh, I think we're, we're socialized to be negative towards new things. Ugh, what's that stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what's wrong with good old rock and roll or whatever I like, right? You know, I want to listen to two kinds of music, country and Western kind of, a, you know, whatever you're comfortable <laughs> with. I, I love classical music, right? All the music's garbage. You know, mu- music is one of those industries that's very polarized. People get that way and go, and I liked all kinds of music and I couldn't understand that kind of thinking. Then I discovered that people that are highly entrepreneurial, um, many of them have this sort of open-mindedness, right? To, well, geez, you know, I, I remember uh, people's North Americans resistance to sushi, um, and raw fish, ugh, right? It's this wasabi thing, you know, it's too hot, da-da-da-da. Well, 20, 30 years ago, I mean, the only sushi uh, restaurants would be in, in sort of local Japanese community establishments and mainly frequented by uh, 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 the Japanese community and maybe a few other people that had traveled and worked in Japan, right? But now you can go to every, any, any shopping mall and there's a, you know, kiosk, a mm-hmm. little fast food sushi place fast food and you go to a grocery store and there's ready to go take out sushi meals that was unthinkable 30 years ago right but the vast i just remember the reaction to anything new right most people haven't and and then that's the other thing you know the opposite is I'm, I'm curious so you know uh i uh i observe those things and and uh that curiosity leads to experimentation with things right which 
um, Clint Christensen, those guys uh, sort, sort of saw the, the um, those habits are essentially feedstock. Um, and from that feedstock come your ideas, right? So um, without that, that, where do ideas come from, right? Where do your business inspirations come from, right? So that's how you miss things because you're not open. You're, you're, you're happily in your, in your trolley tracks, mm. right? You never look, you know, they talk about the, uh, the tourist trail, the tourist path, how tourists never venture more than hundred meters off one path. You go to anywhere, it's like in, in Alberta, you go to Lake Louise, right? You go up there, it's massively crowded down in the, you know, sort of the center there and, and by, by the hotel and by the lake. And you go up and start walking up one of the trails and it's super busy, the trailhead. And then you go a couple hundred meters and it starts to peter out and you go one kilometer, there's nobody out there, right? And then you start exploring and it's the same thing in many tourist areas that people never wander off. They stay to where it's safe, right? Mm. And uh, the curiosity doesn't take them out further. They're not interested. They don't observe. They go, why is that, right? So... I, uh, I, I, when I coach and I teach these subjects, I, I love getting people to think about that. Ask the question, why? Why are people doing that? So they're like, 130 million Japanese can't be wrong because they eat sushi, most of them, daily. They're just human beings like the rest of us and they love it. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't I love it? Wow, that's a good point. Man, you re- I can really see how being a polymath would pay off and being curious would pay off if you're trying to be an entrepreneur, right? Like, Yeah, I, I mean, I... Uh, I always, uh, I, I remember investigating, the, I, uh, I, part of my uh, coaching of startups, I decided to get a little more professional about it, and I, I went down the executive coaching path formally. And that led me to meeting some very interesting people in the, in the, uh, in the um, areas of psychological and psychiatric research, so neuroplasticity on the psychiatric side and, and uh, personality uh, trait science on the uh, psychology side and, and, and the, end, the, the forming of your personality and... and uh, it's very, very, uh, um, it's still f- actually by, by traditional standards a nascent field, right? And uh, full of uh, sort of suburban myths by the general public too, right? So, um, you know, sort of polymathic behavior, I think, for the most part. I mean, we, we do have our, our genetic predispositions, uh, but from all the research that's out there, you know, you're, it's kind of weird, but you're basically the coincidental that you're essentially 50% genetically predetermined by your characteristics of personality and other things, and 50% is your environment. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, environment has a greater than 50% impact. Unfortunately, in the areas of trauma in particular, it does. Mm -hmm. Literally, the the, uh, the uh, uh, neuroplasticity research have shown that you can rewire your brain, unfortunately, through trauma in a very negative way. And this is like PTSD. That's why it's such a horrible affliction. It's so hard to change that. Um, it's a very slow wiring process to go the other way, but you can rewire yourself to be more open to new experiences mm. to a certain extent. Oh, the trauma and PTSD reminds me, the Peter Jackson film is They Shall Not Grow Old for anybody yeah, who wanted to look it up. Uh, you know what? And I highly recommend watching it. Um, it uh, uh, they hired regional voice actors to dub yeah, over, yeah. and it really does make the individual's characters. Okay. The last thing yeah. I want to talk to you about, because yeah. we, we've been talking a while, is yeah. just... I'm curious um, the ways that your degree, your engineering degree, have played a role when you're making startups and when, even when you're coaching. You know, uh, my engineering background gives me an extremely solid foundation of science. So, um, they, uh, I, you, know, I, you know, mathematics, physics, chemistry, material science, you know, um, all those good things. And, and and especially with the uh, internet, of course, uh, you know, I, I don't know if uh, you've heard of the T-shaped individual. Um, so, so you're very broad across many subjects and then deep in a few areas. That's how most of us should mature uh, over your life, right? So you, you have um, something that you're good at, deeply good at. So that's the, the bottom of the T. But there's many subjects you might be interested in. And most people... For, uh, have some interests which are are fairly broad but not very deep. So many of your hobbies may start off that way as a shallow interest, and it gets deeper and deeper as you find interest. Maybe you pull out of that hobby and try something new. But uh, engineering gave me an amazing uh, T, top of the T, uh, that allows me to um, understand what I'm looking at, and I know just enough that I know I can uh, I should go seek out someone who knows something about it. 
<laughs> so, so it's that Dunning-Kruger effect, uh, sort of one of the corollaries of, of uh, I know enough to know that I don't know enough. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's very, very Socratic. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's a metacognition thing. Uh, I became very aware of uh, in my early days, a lot of people just had no understanding. In fact, the people that were the most dangerous were the people that they were convinced they were smart, mm-hmm. smarter than the rest of us. Yep. And I go, oh my God, you really don't know anything. And that ignorance makes you feel like you're superior and you know what you're doing. And those are very dangerous people to themselves, to other business colleagues mm-hmm. in general. In our society, unfortunately, now uh, the internet has an amazing way to uh, send a reinforcement signal to people like that. It's unbelievable how those echo chambers form up and these people are, are so convinced of their uh, their uh, their abilities or their knowledge or over others and they're, they're, they've, they've turned off that critical thinking um, and that feedback loop just, you know, builds on itself, right? And so, you know, the education uh, in engineering gave me that opportunity and I would have to say not all engineers have taken it too. I mean, they've, many uh, engineering colleagues have found themselves as well down that sort of echo chamber path. So I think, uh, you know, an individual needs to be very aware. Uh, and I know the uh, engineering curriculum, um, there's a lot of questioning of, of, of what should be taught because it is regulated in Canada, right? The Engineering Act and, and Engineers Canada has a huge part um, with the engineering schools of that. And there's a lot of discussion of what's what's relevant, what should be. And the thing that I found lacking in my engineering education was, you know, Peter Drucker, uh, you know, sort of the father of modern management science, um, you know, used to talk about the soft stuff's the hard stuff, right? And uh, engineering gave me a lot of good education in the hard stuff, the sciences and stuff and formulas and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, uh, systems and all that, but didn't give me, it gave me almost nothing on the soft stuff, which turned out to be the most important thing. That is a recurring message in this podcast. Everyone I interview talks to me about how, you know, I can be talking, I talked to a guy who had an engineering degree, he works for Microsoft now, talking about how soft skills are the things that they really need. You could be the best at what you do, but if you don't get along with people and you have a huge ego, it's really not worth it. Yeah, you have a lack of uh, of self-awareness, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I I struggle with, you know, uh, all that engineering talent that's gone to waste. Um, And you see this, I mean... Um, uh, everywhere, not just engineers, uh, but but you know, let's talk about engineers because it is my my background is of of, of people that uh, cannot see that. I I remember having like Paul Bogoff in in his that like one interesting enough. I I I understand that concept of your weakness is your strength, and uh, you know my weakness uh, is that I'm not technically great at anything. I'm relatively mediocre at a lot of things, right? But in, in the grand scheme of things, right? So I'm not a great software developer. Uh, my mathematics knowledge is, for the average layperson, yeah, you know, I have university level calculus, and differential equations, and blah 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 blah. But compared to the people that I know that are, you know, the, in the bottom part of the T, you know, I have a baby brain, right? <laughs> I get it. It's like I can't get my head wrapped around quantum physics at all. I know the top guys in quantum physics can't get wrapped around it either, right? That's they, they. But but uh, the point is, I do have a, enough of an understanding to know when I need to pull in somebody who's a, who's a quant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know my limitations, right? And uh, it's interesting that on the other podcast people mention this. It comes up over and over, and, and the uh, lack of ability to communicate, how to express your ideas, mm-hmm. how to sell your ideas. I remember many engineers are instinctively. Uh, disagreeable towards the process of selling. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- many engineers have uh, have been sort of culturalized or conditioned to believe that, well, good ideas just win, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it makes sort of sense. It's yeah. all the formulas here, the, the paper and the maths here and all the sciences here. Like, why wouldn't you do it? Humans don't work that way. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because my background is all uh, English lit, right. of my education anyway. Yeah. So I'm always like, you got to be able to tell your story. Well, you know, I mean, that that's, I, you know, when you go into engineering, I mean, you know, everyone's tribal, mm-hmm. right? Humans are naturally tuned to be tribal. So you have little arts tribes and this tribe and that <laughs> tribe, right? And, and of course, we're better and smarter than the other tribes, clearly, because <laughs> we that's why we're in this tribe, right? It self-reinforces and you realize, of course, that doesn't make any sense in the real world, right? No. Why would we put up these artificial barriers? Because human beings are also, you know, we're, we're uh, our, our nature is, 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 to be fearful 
and it, and it's a struggle not to be fearful. We have to dampen down those uh, those instincts that we have. And, mm-hmm. You know, so so tribalism supports and reinforces that, right? Um, and uh, like I said, like uh, I was, I, I I grew to have a lot of respect for people, um, you know, that that had other approaches. So you know, what, you know, what do you, what does one do with an anthropology degree or sociology degree or an economics degree? It all seems kind of like impractical to me, right? As an engineer, mm-hmm. then you realize, oh wait, 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 you know, like hmm, English majors, well, they study, you know, essentially narrative, like you said, right? I, when I when I discovered the the uh, Hero's Journey, the concept sure. of that, right? So, Campbell, yeah. Yeah, Campbell, yeah, Joseph Campbell, right? I didn't learn about it until my 20s, right? I said, where was this stuff? Like, this is actually useful stuff to understand how human beings relate to each other. Mm-hmm. And, and and I realized many executive stories are the hero's journey, right? Um, and, and, and then humans look for those stories, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we love storytelling, and you realize selling is storytelling, right? Um, yeah. And... If I have something that's wonderful that I think the world could use or need and I can make a great business out of, I can't tell my story, I'll never get it out there. It'll never work. It'll mm-hmm. fail, right? Yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, we talked about Apple and that whole company is structured around, I think, first of all, excellent products, but very yeah. good storytelling. Oh, very- amazing. Steve Jobs clearly. Oh, yeah, he's a showman. He's a showman. He understood that he's, he also was a person that didn't take a, a straight path. He wandered way off mm-hmm. the path all the time, looking mm-hmm. at things that conventional think would say, you're wasting, what are you doing over there? Like, what are you looking at? You know, uh, why are you traveling around Japan looking at how people fix chip pottery, right? Why are you hanging around with these gurus, right? What are you doing, right, dude? Like you're a technology guy. But he was he was curious. He was curious, and that was feedstock for his ideas and his right. philosophies. He understood. He thought about this. I mean, you know, it's interesting. And again, I'm all, and the internet's great because you know Steve Jobs could be built up to be this business scion and hero, and he which he is. But he's a very was a very flawed human being. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, so I always try to point that out. You know, I, I I love many things that Steve Jobs did, but I also very very. Uh, sad and somewhat critical of his lacking qualities as a father and as a human being, right? Yeah. So, um, but that's that's what's wonderful and 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 uh, about the world we live in. We can we can find those stories, right? Um, it's also bad because then people don't want those stories to be known. It doesn't matter. It gets out there on the internet. Well, I think stories like tech, as you said before, um, are can be neutral, and then we twist them to be good or evil, and put that in air quotes. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, narrative. Well, you, yeah, exactly. Well, like we're in, we're in the age of uh, the next generation of super propaganda right now, right? Right. Well, Absolutely. talk about deep fakes, right? Oh That's... my God, yeah. I mean, and 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 echo chambers and mm-hmm. and, and mass social manipulation that's going on. Um, you don't even know what's true or not anymore, right? Well, um, I mean, in, in in politics, I think we're beyond truth. It's yeah, uh... yeah. truthiness, right? Yeah. Beyond truthiness, <laughs> well, yeah. Truth, truthiness was a pre-Trump concept, it's exactly. Stephen Colbert, I remember going. That's so true, and it was like it was a bit of a. A bit of a joke, obviously, yes. and a parody of, of what was going on, but it, we, it went way past that. Well, we're in the yeah. age now where you, you just say the lie and it gets in the press and therefore it's the truth now. Well, I mean, the Nazis, Goebbels talked about the big lie. And I remember as a high school student, I was lucky to have a high school teacher to talk about it. Yeah. And, and, and essentially the concept was the bigger the lie, more, the more people are likely to believe it because they can't believe it can't be true. That's right. Right. And, and that's being deployed now in strength. And we, you know, people wrote about it. Lots of people wrote about it in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, mm. right? And people are digging up those quotes. And I can't believe we're actually revisiting this again, right? Um, yes. And now we've got these amplification tools. Yes. Right? Mm. So. Evan, I could talk to you all day. I really could. <laughs> but we have to do the lightning round. Okay, right. And then we have to wrap it up. The lightning round is brought to you by our affinity partner, TD Insurance. These are just quick questions. You just ask them off the top, answer them off the top of your head, whatever comes to you. Have you ever been fired? Yes. Uh, I had a summer job without getting into too far. Uh, uh, some equipment was damaged. Uh, <laughs> uh, interestingly enough, it was my supervisor that told me not to follow the right procedure because we were in a hurry. And I just assumed he was in charge. He would accept responsibility. I learned a very hard lesson. Not don't, always how it goes. Don't do... Th- do what you think is right. And if someone thinks that you should not do that, don't listen to them. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Jeez. I had a short attention span. I pretty well changed from everything. I, I think the thing that was a little bit sad for me, uh, being a visible minority in Canada, I already knew at a young age certain jobs weren't something I ever could be. Really? Yeah. 
I, I felt I could never be prime minister. Mm -hmm. I could never be the CEO of a company. I knew that I couldn't be in the NHL. Wow. I was very aware of, you know, um, sports. Like Normie Kwong was the only role model I could find in professional sports that was an Asian mm -hmm. Canadian, right? Or an Asian American or whatever, right? He's an Asian Canadian, but yeah. That seems to be slowly changing as well. It is. It is. It's it's a slow process. It's a good process. In Canada. I think we're, I'm, I'm very proud to be living in Canada. I think Canada is the best country in the world, regardless of what the various standards uh, out there, the, the, the polls are, and studies are done because because of this inclusion in Canada. Uh, what's something that you wish people understood about startups, like the outside world? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's a loaded lightning. I don't even know where Sorry to about start that. with that Mo one. Most, mostly, I just ask people what's something that uh, people don't know, understand about their job. But because you are all out there doing all these things, okay, I thought I'd focus. I, I think if you're capable of doing it, in other words, you, you're able to you know, take two years out of your life. Um, it's amazing life compression. Mm -hmm. You will learn more experience more and grow more in two years than most people will grow in 10 or their entire life. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what advice do you have for someone who feels like they're in a career rut or maybe for someone who is uh, working in the industry and feels like the industry is in that boom bust cycle? You know, uh, if you feel if you're trapped, which I think a lot of people in this province probably feel, um, you have to, uh, you have to take a look and take a, uh, look at your economic situation and really look long and hard at what's important in your life. And if you can find a way uh, to put your financial and personal affairs in order, uh, you can start small and chip away at it. And then one day it's like a teeter-totter. All of a sudden it'll flip over and then all of a sudden you're on a career change. But, but you have to decide there is a cost associated and there are sacrifices. And I think a lot of people struggle with those sacrifices. So... You have to think that through and, and, and talk to people, get advice. Um, don't, I guess the, my, my, my uh, advice from, uh, from dealing with negativity is, is, is don't be dragged down by other people. Like, like human beings are also a bit like crabs in a bucket. The rest of the crabs will want to drag you back down with them. Hmm. And uh, it takes some courage. So I recognize that. So and I hope you do out there, listeners. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about what you're doing now? Uh, huh. You know, I, um, there's another secret about um, service. Um, those of us that give actually get more out of it than we give, right? I know it's hard to believe, right? Because we're giving our time away freely. You know, we could be making money with that time or acquiring material possessions. But, uh, you know, at, at some point in time, uh, you start realizing when when is enough enough, right? Like, accumulation of materials, uh, material objects, and, and, and even experiences. I mean, I find that, you know, they talk about people shifting from material acquisition to experience acquisition. It tends to be a lot of uh, flexing and showing off and, and seeing I'm better than you. And I went, wow, and like, does anyone really care? Mm -hmm. And if the people that you're trying to impress, like, what kind of people are those, right? Why should you care about whether they care? So, uh, you know, just do your thing, right? And, and part of services, it's amazing. You, 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 you build a community, you have true friends. Um, you, you, there's something about humans that I know deep. I mean, I've talked to many researchers. We're deeply wired to be, um, in the service of other humans. And that's, that's, that's a, it's an incredible motivator to, and, and, and part of the happiness equation, right? Uh, I, I, you know, happiness isn't a permanent state. It's just a, you know, temporary state, but you know, these these things will lead you to moments of happiness that you don't have, right? So it, it gets a little philosophical here. Uh, it may be religious, but um, I think, um, you know, having that service mindset is is something that's, that's a wonderful thing if you can find your way into it. Mm. Uh, the last thing I want to ask is if you could travel back to talk to yourself right after you graduated, is there any advice you'd give your former self? Well, it goes back to when you asked me what could I, when I was a child, what did I think I could be? I said, you know, I wish I could tell myself you could actually be more uh, and just like I was experimenting on ideas and looking and I said, do it more, get off that couch, you know, stop watching, you know, TV as much as you do. Not, not say the TV is a bad thing, right? Back in the day, today would be watching YouTube or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, or TikTok videos or whatever. Uh, you know, it's okay to be entertained, you know, you need a break, but try more things, be a little more diligent. Um, and you know what? 
you know, people in your lives that are, that are not positives and dragging you down, start to, you know, slowly disassociate yourself from them and give them a chance. But if it's not going there, you know, uh, friendship and loyalty runs two ways, right? I would have told myself that and, 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 and move on. Right. So, um, you know, put more conscious agency into your life and believe that there are more opportunities out there. Right. Um, so younger me had to unprogram a bunch of things. I'm still unprogramming things. So work in progress. <laughs> well, Evan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's really fantastic talking to you. Oh, you're welcome. Special thanks to our guest, Evan Hu, for joining our show and talking about his career journey. And as always, a reminder that the best place for alumni to connect with other alumni about jobs, mentorship, or volunteer opportunities is the online platform Switchboard. It's free, and you can try it out today at uab.ca slash sboard. It's a great tool, no matter where you are in your career journey. Thanks for listening to this episode of What the Job. As promised, here's the bonus follow-up interview we did with Evan. You know, it's interesting, too, because I remember talking to you, and you mentioned uh, the, I think it was the 80s, and how things got pretty bad, and you ended up making a change yourself. So uh, I wonder if now, in the way that it's a pretty bad time right now, it was getting to be a bad time before that, but does that, are you reminded of that time and uh, what has changed now? So uh, this is a unique, obviously a unique set of, of a unique situation period right now, uh, what we're in, there's, it's, it's unprecedented. And um, I think one of the things that's remarkable is that, uh, you know, more has happened in the last 10, you know, weeks plus than the previous 10 years, seriously, at, at every level. Um, you, you see, you know, culturally, societally, uh, uh, you know, um, from economic business standpoint, um, things that people said, oh, you can't do that. That's not possible. All of a sudden are possible, right? So um, I think that uh, amazing amount of change is going to take a while for, you know, people to, uh, adapt to get their heads wrapped around and we're still in the middle of this right so we're there, there's we're not you know coming out of the tunnel just yet um you know we have a still a great deal of uncertainty so um you know the, the challenge is for many people is how to you know continue on giving how uncertain things are so you know, I, I don't want to be one of those guys that uh, you know I remember in the early days uh, the, uh, when we got to lockdown people were you know sort of saying, oh, it's a great time to improve yourself, blah, blah, blah. But others are sitting there going, oh, my God, you're right. I, I, I literally am without a job and my career, maybe my industry shut down. Um, and, you know, when you look at, like, tourism and hospitality, uh, transportation, travel, it's it's never going to be the same, you know. Um, it's not going to come back the same way. Um, and people are coming to that realization. So I think, you know, for everyone, the, the circumstances are different for each per person, right? Um, it, it's, it's made you know, massive disruptions in, in, in personal uh, and, and work activities and habits at every level, right? So if I stand back and I go, well, everyone's in, you know, each one of us is an individual, we need to look through that lens, um, that there is tremendous change. With tremendous change, obviously, it's hard when you're down at the bottom, you're looking for a job and trying to figure out, especially young grads going, oh my God, right? Like I didn't have convocation. My, my, uh, I had a son just graduate, right, in April. And it was like, sort of a, like a huge, like, uh, you know, that's it, over, right? Five years of university and done. And uh, so what's next, right? So, I mean, I, I have to uh, tip my hat to, you know, our various uh, governmental agencies to provide, you know, some support financially and other things to get us through this. But, of course, what happens next? Um, so for me, you know, talking to, and I've talked to a fair number of people, um, and I've been working with startups uh I don't want to be that Pollyanna saying, well, you know, with change, there's always opportunity. Yeah, we get that. <laughs> there's downside. And I, I think we talked earlier and I, I know I, I suffered when I graduated right, right in the heart of a, a recession in Alberta. Right. So, um, and uh, it was very difficult and uh, it's funny in, in the, it's sort of in the, um, in this uh, new world that we're dealing with, we've had you know, a huge social upheaval. And, and uh, so, you know, we got the Black Lives Matter and, other things that have come up and it's becoming um, systemic racism is, is a conversation. And I, I do remember recalling issues with that when I was working, there was no doubt. Um, 
it was a challenge during the recession. Jobs are hard to find, and then there's you know there's there's barriers. So I had to sort of go and accept my situation, I guess. Right? It was, it was difficult to accept the situation, but I had to take one step, you know, every day, one day at a time, try to figure out and try to use every part of my network, my limited tiny network, to figure out what I could do. So, um, you know, the I don't think. You know the circumstances are clearly different, but I think you know some of that thinking is, is still um, valid today. So you know you have to sort of put a plan together and say, okay, what can I do? And you need to do research. And one of, one of the huge things we have that's different today, though, is we have this amazing world of the internet and online facilities. There is help out there. You have to reach out, and as that classic thing is, is that not one is going to be the you know magic, the silver bullet. You just have to go to programs and talk to people. And the question comes up, well, how to talk to people if I can't physically meet them? Well, you know, you start with one person that you do know. You can reach out to them online through an email or call them or, you know, text them or whatever and say, hey, do you mind if I could bend your ear for 15 minutes? I just need some help. You'd be surprised. Um, you know, some people are not generous. They'll just ignore you but uh, or they're too busy or whatever. But there'll be one person or two that'll be, you know, super generous and they'll say, yeah, yeah, I'll help you out. Talk to them, but have an ask, right? Think about something. You know, I, I could use an introduction. I could, you know, whatever. I need some advice. Da, da, da. You know, you put out, you know, 20, 30 feelers like that. I'm sure you get three or four will come back. And, and it all it takes is one person to be in the right place and the right time for you that can make, you know, that nudge that puts you in a, in a direction. And it's funny, when you talked about, again, back to my days, I, I thought, you know, it was precarious for me. It was difficult. I mean, it was, it was basically, you know, down to my last few dollars kind of a thing. Going, what am I going to do, right? And um, and a few things broke my way slowly, tiny, tiny things. And I went, when I traced my path, you look back and it was, it was pretty fragile, right? But I had put out a bunch of, you know, little feelers out and seedlings and followed through. So, um I think there's a lot packed in there. So <laughs> did you think that things would change? Like, did you think that uh, the trajectory of the province would bounce back? Was there that feeling of optimism for the future? Back then, it's funny. I mean, every time you have, in my mind, back then it was pretty bleak. I mean, it was the 80s. We just had you know, the complete crash in 81, right? Um you know, a lot of political anger, Western separatism, you know, blah, 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 and economic turmoil. Like, uh, I remember, I don't know if you go way back in the time machine with the dollar dollar mortgage flips and all this turmoil, people were losing their homes and stuff. It was very bleak. And then, you know, we had a glimmer of hope uh, coming out of that, and all of a sudden things went flat again, right? So we didn't, I don't think we had established that boom bust pattern of, oh, after each bust, there's a boom, right? Um, we got into that pattern over the years, and and uh, and when we we were become, I think we became a little psychologically um, comfortable with that actually as a province because now we're at the other end where you know we've had the last uh, oil uh, crash and, and and it hasn't come back and it doesn't appear to be coming back. So, and um, but back then it was the same. I didn't have the feeling that oh this it was I had a feeling like holy you know this may not come back the same way. No one knew. So uh, crazy geopolitical stuff was going on too because, you know, they're little, you know, they're f fast forward a few years later, then, you know, the, uh, the uh, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait, right? And we had the Gulf War. Um, so there's always these, these black swan events that come along and, and, and uh, you know, the nature of the black swan is you don't expect the black swan to show up, right? And here we are with another major black swan. So, um, you know, human, you know, human beings, you know, we, have a, we have a huge amount of resilience societally. Right. I mean, things are, I got to say, this is, again, historically unprecedented by anyone you talk to. Right. We, we've, you know, we, we've got pandemic. We have political turmoil in the U.S. Right. Um, we have, and the pandemic has caused, you know, everything essentially societal that we do to shut down. Right. Um, and then we now have had, uh, you know, the, the pandemic is just showing the fault lines of, uh, you know, economic inequality, inequity in, in, in basically Western society. Um, and then now we have, you know, uh, the protests and, and the George Floyd incident, uh, and those things are coming to the top. And, and so, um, and then, then of course, last but not least in the American election coming up. Right. Um, and so 
those things all add to the uncertainty that I think a lot of people feel and legitimately an anxiety towards it. But, you know, I, I, I think as an individual, what can you do? Well, I think, you know, to, to preserve your sort of mental health, you, you got to, you know, you have to basically shut some of that out. I mean, we have, unfortunately, the seven by, you know, 24 by seven media cycle now, and you can, it's all you can eat, which, you know, I've, I've had to do that too. I've, I've tried to tune down my, I don't look at Twitter at all now. Right. Just, you know, not that's just congratulations stop. on that. Cause I wish I could <laughs> stay away yeah, from you Twitter. Know, and, and I do have Facebook going. Yes. You know, the, the older generation, it's, it's the only decent way I can keep touch with sort of uh, friends that are true friends. And, uh, but I've, you know, tried to tune Facebook to stop my news feeds and mm-hmm. any kind of negative stuff that I find that, you know, it's like, okay, there's just too much coming. So, um, little things like that you can you can do and you know, try to connect with your friends and, and do calls. Just pick up the phone. I, I think we've had the, I've had this new conversations with people just picking up phones and I say, oh my god, I can and go for a walk with your phone, right? So you're walking. You know, so those little things can make minor minor differences. But again, there's no one silver bullet. So those are all minor accumulations that can you know improve your outlook, right? And and uh, it's, it's all part of a pack. You're 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 a package, right? You're you're not just one facet at a time, right? Yeah. 